Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice, which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode, we're talking with an expert about hemochromatosis, but we're dedicating the podcast to the memory of Professor Laurie Powell, both a gentleman, a mentor and a giant in the field of hepatology and whose very significant contributions to our understanding of hemochromatosis laid down a firm foundation of knowledge and insight for everyone practicing internal medicine. It's upon his shoulders that much further research in the field of hemochromatosis and hepatology generally has prospered. Well, hemochromatosis is the most common autosomal recessive disorder in Caucasians, with an incidence of about 1 in 260 and carriage of about 1 in 10. Untreated, the excess iron storage from hemochromatosis may lead to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma, diabetes, cardiomyopathy, hypogonadism, arthritis, a bronzing of the skin, and renders some susceptible to siderophilic bacteria, including Vibrio and Yersinia species. The consequences of iron overload are exacerbated by pre-existing conditions such as NASH and alcohol-associated liver disease. Well, as a background to iron overload, I'd like to review some key points about iron metabolism. Firstly, let's consider the ingestion and absorption across the gut enterocytes. Well, normally about 20 milligrams of iron is ingested daily, of which only 3 to 6%, about 5 milligrams, is absorbed, balanced against losses. Whilst dietary non-heme iron is in the ferric 3 plus form, it must be in the ferrous Fe2 plus form for absorption, and is converted to the ferrous Fe2 plus form by ferric reductase then transported across the brush border into the enterocyte by a divalent metal transporter. And this process is inhibited by the absence of acids such as we would see in gastrectomy patients or where there's aquahedria, as well as by tannins, oxalates, phytates found in cereal and tea, and inorganic phosphates. Absorption is generally facilitated, however, by ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. Heme-bound iron, by contrast, is absorbed across enterocytes by a heme carrier protein, a different mechanism altogether. Well, transport of absorbed iron out of the enterocyte once there and across the basolateral membrane where it can be utilized by our body involves a transport protein called ferroportin. The ferrous Fe2 plus form now clumsily has to be oxidized back to the ferric Fe3 plus form by a ferrooxidase called hephaestin and is then available for binding to transferrin and for transport through the circulation. And transferrin binds to transferrin receptors at all targets, which internalize the iron for cellular use after endocytosis. Well, how much iron is stored normally, and how is it reused after red cell removal? About 3 to 4 grams of iron is present in most adult bodies, usually as hemoglobin, but also as myoglobin, and in a fascinating storage protein called ferritin found in multiple sites, including especially the liver, but also in enterocytes. The iron from the feet red blood cells is engulfed and processed by macrophages. How is homeostasis maintained? Well, normally, intestinal absorption of iron is modified by dietary intake, the status of iron stores in the body, and the state of erythropoiesis, with abnormal physiologic states and genetic conditions such as hemochromatosis being major influences on this. A key breakthrough in the understanding of hemochromatosis came with the discovery of a negative regulatory protein coded for by HAMP gene on chromosome 19 called hepcidin. And hepcidin serves as a counter-regulatory protein. As iron absorption and storage increase, 
hepcidin levels in healthy individuals also increase, leading to decreased iron absorption and then restoration of normal iron levels. So hepcidin appears to work by internalization and degradation of the ferroportin mentioned earlier, thereby inhibiting iron absorption across the basolateral membrane of enterocytes as serum iron levels climb. A transferrin receptor on the surface of hepatocytes appears to relay information concerning serum iron concentration as part of this elaborate feedback mechanism. While mutations of the so-called high iron or hemostatic iron regulator, HFE gene, found on the short arm of chromosome 6, modulate the expression of hepcidin, effectively blocking the elaborate feedback mechanisms that send serum iron and leading to inappropriately low levels of hepcidin production as iron levels climb. This defect underlies the problem of excess iron absorption and hemochromatosis with the consequent adverse physiological effects mentioned above. Well, the gene mutation responsible for hemochromatosis is thought to have arisen some 6,000 years ago within Viking or Celtic communities, possibly protecting against iron deficiency states when resources were scarce. So what about these mutations we measure in hemochromatosis? In patients experiencing hemochromatosis, total iron stores may range from 10 to 40 grams. The 282 tyrosine for cysteine mutation, the so-called C282Y mutation, is responsible in homozygotes for increased iron absorption by a factor of about 2,000. The aspartate for histidine, H63D mutation, increases absorption by about eightfold, whilst compound heterozygotes have increased iron absorption of about 25-fold. Other mutations noted by the online Mendelian inheritance in man data base uh, site defects of hemoduvalin, hepcidin itself, as well as ferroportin. However, in clinical context, these are relatively rare. Treatment by regular phlebotomy remains the preferred method of management, and screening for HCC in cases of established cirrhosis is mandatory. Well, I was honoured to further this conversation about hemochromatosis with Professor Daryl Crawford, one of my mentors from Queensland in a previous life. Daryl has both a reputation for being an excellent hepatologist as well as having significant international standing in the field of liver disease and has published widely. He has held leadership positions within the national and international professional societies relevant to his discipline, including Giza and the University of Queensland, including as the acting deputy executive dean and head school of medicine, where he's played a key role in reshaping the medical program and medical faculty at the University of Queensland. Please welcome Daryl to the podcast. Professor Daryl Crawford, thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine. Uh, Daryl, I haven't seen you for a long time. You look incredibly well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic, in fact. Unchanged. <laughs> Since I was, you know, sort of working under you at uh, the Royal Brisbane all those years ago. And, uh, you know, I see you, uh, uh, Daryl, you know, as one of Australia's experts on iron overload syndromes. And I think we probably do need to dedicate this um, this podcast to the memory and that immense contribution of Laurie Powell and... Uh, you know, who I thought was a tremendous guy, and I only knew him, you know, really fleetingly compared to you, and I've, your your um, your obituary and so forth was incredibly beautifully written, I thought, for Laurie Powell. So I think we should dedicate it to Laurie. Um, I think, yes. Yeah. yeah. He was a great guy, Laurie, and great to work for, um, and had this knack of, you know, making young and, you know, young insignificant people feel important. <laughs> so he was, you know, he was, he was uh, yeah. I mean, and the more... 
the more I've thought about him, particularly around his death and the obituary, you know, the more you realise just the depth, you know, of his life, you know, and uh, and I honestly don't know how he fitted absolutely everything into it, you know. Um, he took me aside, or I went to see him, I think I went to see him actually just for advice. He gave me the best advice actually anyone had given actually in, in medicine, you know. He was very honest in talking about a whole range of things, you know, on a private level. It was extremely helpful to me. And, you know, he didn't have to do that. I think mm. that was the sort of person he was. Mm. He, he didn't really have another agenda. There was no ulterior motive no. from what I could tell. No. He was just a really nice, uh, really nice and an incredibly intellectual man. So um, thank you. Your journey, uh, Daryl, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into gastroenterology and, and oh, yeah, okay. the world well, of research? I... I um... I did my first year in gastroenterology here at Greenslopes Hospital as a registrar in about 19... It's been the same year as um, the Brisbane uh, convention, the... Uh, not the convention, the... Expo. 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 Yeah. And uh, so that was about... I think that was 1988. Uh, and then um, uh, the fellow I was working with here, Len McKeering, or one of the fellows I was with, Len was a great friend of Laurie's, and Len had worked with Laurie for a number of years, and he told me I had to go and work for this fellow, Laurie Powell. And so I had met Laurie before because he he it was, he was examined me in the college exams, and so he didn't know me from Bar of Soap, except I, you know, I thought he was pretty cool because he passed me in the exam. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so Laurie, so, um, and uh, so I went to work for Laurie and went to work with Royal Brisbane and, um and you know, I my my project at that time, the funding came from a from a a, a study on um, nutrition in end stage liver disease because the transplant programs were just kicking off then, and the big issue as opposed to now in liver disease, which is over nutrition in those days, it was under nutrition, mm. and uh, so uh, I did my MD around um, body composition in end stage liver disease. Um, and then, um, but, you know, the more and more work you did with Laurie, the more you got drawn into iron overload and iron metabolism. And um, and so I can remember when I, you know, it was halfway through my thesis, I said to Laurie that I, I'm happy to finish my thesis on this, but I just, you know, you find it really interesting, um, uh, the disorders of iron metabolism. And so, so we, you know, but he had this, you know, stable of, patients with a heap of clinical data and so we we and and the the gene was on the verge of being cloned um and so we had we wrote up a lot of work then um and i had a, a sabbatical in southampton where i did some work on on toxicity and then came back and i sort of felt i had to you know um free myself a little bit that so that's when I went to PA as director of gastroenterology at PA. And PA had the transplant program. And so it was always to me that that hospitals with transplant programs were going to be stronger. But we continued our own work, you know, over there and, and collaborated with Laurie strongly and we wrote a lot of papers together then. And um, then um, I moved to Greenslopes. I'd always had an affinity here and... The university was back when the university wanted to grow their numbers and they were reopening or they were increasing the size of the clinical schools. And so I got offered um, a job as the head of the clinical school here, which I took. And then gradually became more more enmeshed in the university and became the head of the what was the Department of Medicine. 
And then the dean's job became available and I applied for the dean's job and was a dean for about four years. And then I stepped down from that in about 2017 and have kept a formal role with the university, but have um, also been wonderfully supported by the research foundation at Greenslopes called the Glippley Medical Research Foundation. So I'm the director of research with that program as well. But a lot of that program is centred more around veterans' health, but liver disease is very important in veterans, uh, obviously. And um, and so we've we've continued our work in the context of you know of the foundation, Greenslopes Hospital and University attachments. It's a stellar career. I think you'd be a very nice dean, actually. <laughs> uh, that's that's a really bit beautifully uh, summarised. Um, you're later on today. You're going to be um, overseeing the the new guidelines for management of iron overload. C- can you, which is going to be exciting, and we'll all be looking forward to receiving that um, in due course from Geezer and so forth. But tell us a little bit about iron metabolism. What what do we need to know about iron metabolism? Um, I think. The, the points of confusion to me um, is is one: what is ferritin, yes. and so so it, it's frequently that patients will come to me and say, "I've got too much iron in my body." How do you know you've got too much iron? Well, I've been told that my ferritin's too high, and you know, ferritin is not iron. Ferritin is a storage molecule for iron. Yes, and and I make the analogy to my patients that that um, you know. Ferritin is to iron like a silo is to grain. And so that, you know, when you have more iron, you need more ferritin. When you have more silos, you need, when you have more grain, you need more silos. But you can also have plenty of silos without having too much grain, just like you can have plenty of ferritin without having too much iron. And then I'll explain to them that, you know, there's preformed ferritin sitting in your liver that's waiting for iron to come in. But if there's something irritating in your liver, then that preformed ferritin. It's supposed that the preformed ferritin then is released from cells that are undergoing necrosis or inflammatory change, and the and the ferritin spills out into the bloodstream and is measured as high. So, so I think you know understanding that um, what ferritin is 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 important in interpretation of iron studies because as you know you know we see lots and lots of patients who have got a normal transferrin saturation, elevated serum ferritin. They've told they've got him. They've even started veiny sections. Yes. When in fact the cause of their high ferritin is not iron overload at all. So that's a very common clinical problem, and a lot yeah. of people get referred in that setting. Yeah. Does it have to be? It's not like we think of ferritin as an acute phase, which is what you're sort of saying. It's it's released during periods of inflammation. It's not just an often fatty liver, as I guess is a is a common reason alcoholic liver disease. But you see it with other inflammatory conditions as well, like arthritis and so forth. Yeah. Where's it coming from in that instance? Is it getting pushed out of the bone marrow? Or... Uh, no, it's probably, it's, it's, we're not sure, but it's probably still hepatic in that situation. Um, and, uh, but as you say, you know, with, with uh, hepatocyte necrosis, you know, it goes up. And that's when you'll see, you know, sometimes people come in with acute alcoholic hepatitis and they'll have ferritins of six or 8,000. Everybody's rings you and they say, I've got the guy at the worst. The worst hemochromatosis I've ever seen. <laughs> so, yes. But so I did. I, I, I did. Uh, so I think that. So I think the whole issue around ferritin is is one part of iron biology that people yes. need to understand. I think 
you know, transparent saturation, exactly what is it? I think people are often, they don't have a concept of what transparent saturation really is. And and my, you know, the, the, this transparent saturation to me measures flux of iron around the body. Basically, you know, you've got a transport molecule called transferrin. You've got iron loaded onto your transferrin train. And the, the more iron that's absorbed from your bloodstream, the more it's going to pop into, the more that's absorbed from your intestine, the more that's going to pop in your bloodstream and your, your transferrin molecule as it goes, takes iron around your body, is going to be more saturated, you know, just like just like a coal train coming from the coal mine sort of thing. And so, so and, and it is one of the earliest phenotypic markers. So like when, when you're looking at iron studies and you look at transferrin saturation, and then you look at ferritin, transferrin saturation, the hemochromatotic often goes up first. But the other thing about ferritin is you have to look at it in relationship to age and gender. So if you and and your previous old, not old boss, your previous previous boss, Barbara Leggett's thesis, one of the, her chapters was all about ferritin and it's, how it varies with age and gender and different things. And so, you know, when you see a young person who's ferritin, young girl who's ferritin's within the reference range, say 200, and you say, oh, it's in the reference range. But a ferritin of 200 in a young age, 17 or 18-year-old you know, female is really high. Yes. So, so I think the other mistake that's made with iron studies um, really in relationship to ferritin is also not interpreting it, uh, thinking about the characteristics of the patient. But when we – well, thanks for that summary, Daryl. When we measure serum iron, because mm. iron's not actually free, how we, what are we actually measuring when we actually look at the iron level? Well, you, you're actually iron in your, you're measuring iron in your serum, but you're, the, the thing about it is subject to a lot of diurnal variation. And really, and, and really what you want to know in these diseases is what your storage, the iron storage volume is or mass is. And that's why ferritin, you know, ferritin has got a good correlation with, with total body iron stores. Uh, and that's why it's more valuable to interpret uh, you know, one's iron status than what simple serum ferret, serum iron is, because as I said, serum iron will fluctuate. Is it important when we're looking at the iron stores also to to add to that uh, request on the blood film, on the blood on the blood slip, ESR and seriactive protein? Do they give us a reasonable indication of other inflammatory processes, or still not necessarily? Um, you know, I. Uh, they're reasonable to add. Uh, you know, I think that when you see somebody who's got inflammatory cause for an elevated serum ferritin, like an, like an acute arthritis or something like that, you know, and I hate to be old school about it, but probably you get just as much from the history and the physical examination as what you get from a CRP and an ESR. Yes. And, and, the, and that you'll see, but you'll see, you know, if, it, if, it's, if, it's a not, if it's hepatic inflammation and not systemic inflammation, your... your um, your CRP and ESR are often normal, and so yeah. so it sort of doesn't help in that, yeah. but it does. It is is often concordant with what you would expect in patients who've got inflammatory arthritis as a cause of the high ferritin. So, Dale, in relation to overload, iron overload syndromes, can you can you mention a little bit about you know genetic, which we're we're talking about here predominantly about hemochromatosis, genetic and secondary? What what do we need to sort of be aware of? Um, I think, I mean, I think the things are that if you look at homozygous, C2A2Y homozygous hemochromatosis, um, it, there's such a variable expression in this disease. Yes. Um, and that's one of the, 
one of the traps in it or one of the tricks in it, I think. Um, you know why that is? Because they're not all going to get iron overload, are they? No, they're not, you know, and I think that if you... Well, I mean, it's explained... Obviously, gender explains it and menstruation explains yes. a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and then whether there's that, that influence, does it, the phenotypic expression... Um, I, I think. I mean, I my uh, most outstanding case was a fellow who was uh, uh, he was about twenty eight, twenty nine, uh, presented with a loss of libido, fatigue, tiredness, um, had a serum ferritin of eight thousand, uh, transferrin saturation hundred um, percent, had a hepatic iron concentration of something like four hundred, was cirrhotic, and he, but he had. Um, Thalassemia syndrome, as well as being homozygous. He had thalminor as well as being homozygous for first C2A2O. So, um, and so that's an example of, you know, somebody with severe phenotype, but who had an explicit, you know, you could explain it. Um, uh, so, I, so I, you know, the, so gender, age, um, concomitant medications, pathological blood loss. Physiological blood loss are all sort of factors that influence phenotype. Yes. Um, but, you know, if you look at, you know, most people will have an elevated transferrin saturation, about half to maybe a little bit more will have a high serum ferritin. And then by the time you get down to, um, you know, clinical comorbidities, you're looking, you know, at somewhere around 25, 30%. So, and then you know, and and it's very uncommon now. I mean, the 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 the, the hepatic complications, the development of cirrhosis, and then the subsequent risk of liver cancer related to your hepatic iron concentration, and and obviously that slowly accumulates over time. Yeah. And and generally, I think in Australia, because of works, you know, for people like Laurie, and then the other, yes. you know, the other leaders in the field, um, you know, the 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 awareness both at a clinical clinician level and a and a public awareness of it is pretty strong. And so I think, yes. you know, a lot of people get picked up. Early on. Early I think on. there's a lot more testing of blood as well. Yeah, exactly. Actually, for the most part, I have to say, I now see a lot of people with iron deficiency, which I don't completely understand. Mm, these yeah. people are on anticoagulants. I think so many people are on anticoagulants. But, um, but you don't, I haven't seen anyone with really advanced hemochromatosis and you know, one of the papers I did um, was I, I, I retrieved the Australian liver transplant data and I did a sabbatical in Birmingham and I retrieved the UK data or the Birmingham data. And I think we had 21 out of like 3,000 transplants were for hemochromatosis. People used to joke that it was a disease that was more common in the donor than what it was in the recipient. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, all, it's all national America now, I think. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, that's right. But that was an interesting study because what we were able to show in that was that when you transplanted the liver, the disease was cured. Okay. And uh, and that and that uh, you know uh, fit uh, was was fitting with the. the the observations around, you know, hepcidin, which is the yeah. the molecule that's the master regulator of iron metabolism, and that's the other bit of, I guess, biochemistry we should we should know is that, you know, hepcidin is a small peptide secreted by the liver. It binds to ferroportin, which is an iron transporter on the the surface of the of the enterocytes and other cells, and then internalizes the ferroportins. 
And so, um, so when you're deficient in the hepcidin, your ferritin can just your ferroportin can just iron export the whole time. Yes. So, so hemochromatosis is sort of like a disease of hepcidin deficiency. And so then, what, can, can you explain? So that that's how it affects. It has that negative regulation on the on the ferroportin iron transport of the yeah. lateral membrane. But the HFE mutation. Am I right in saying that that has an effect on that transferrin? transferrin 2 receptor on the hepatocyte, it sort of affects the way that transferrin is regulating iron egress, ingress, I should say ingress, into the hepatocyte? Is that how the HFE mutation is affecting the hepcidin, or is that not correct? I don't know. I, I honestly don't think anybody can fully explain the relationship between HFE and hepcidin um, okay. at this point in time. But And there's all, like you're suggesting, there's all different Studies looking at different transporter molecules and everything like this, um, yeah. but it's still it's still a bit of a it's still a puzzle as to to what this link is, you know. It's a bit unsure. Mm. So we've got we've got uh, overload syndromes related to this HFE mutation. We mentioned briefly before we started recording about uh, non HFE mutations, which um, are often written about because I guess they're interesting. Yeah, like that. Uh, HJV, HAMP, yeah. um, very important disease and so forth. But in clinical terms, they're not really something we're going to see. You, you, you haven't seen much so of They're them. uncommon. I mean, I haven't seen yeah. I haven't seen many. You know, like I, I said, I probably, really, I probably have seen somewhere between 5 and 10 true non-HFE related. I mean, there's uh, HFE related um, conditions. I mean, there are. Uh, we, you know, we collaborate with Nathan Subramaniam. I don't know whether Nathan was here when you were here. He and he's got a big interest in um, non-HFE disease, and so we will often get our patients sequenced. But we still have, you know, a a co or significant cohort. We have a number of patients who have got molecularly undefined right. reasons for iron overload. Yes. Um, okay. And I could fall under that group. But for the most part, we're talking about the HFE. You mentioned the 282 mutation. Yeah. Um, we've got the 63 mutation, which is less inclined mm. to uh, affect iron, yeah. iron absorption on overload. Yeah. And then we've got variations of these, and we've got, we can have a compound heterozygous status. Exactly, yeah. Um, we can have heterozygosity of the 282. Um, I, I did read in an American textbook the heterozygosity of the 63. They didn't really pay any attention to that. No, no. And and, and very few, you know, very few uh, patients with, um, uh, com, you know, compound heterozygotes will develop significant iron overload. Um, they're quite quick to treat normally. They respond pretty quickly to venesections if they're ferritin. They do, yeah. Or often they've got, you know, they've got coexistent liver disease, you know, is so common. And they're yeah. like, Either now, you know, from and so I, I look at most people, a lot of people with, you know, as having dates have got two liver disease. They've got iron yeah. overload, and they've got usually, yeah. you know, non or you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or they've got alcohol. Sometimes they've got three, you know, and so, um, and so I think that, you know, we're we've got to sort of get over the little bit of siloed thinking we have about disease. This is a disease, and this is how you treat this disease. Yes, but in fact, and you think, oh, I got rid of their iron. But, you know, they may have progressive liver disease from their underlying fatty liver disease, which yeah. is sort of ignored because, yeah. you know, 
So we ha- you have to be looked at as a whole, for sure. But what level of ferritin uh, do we have to be worrying about? Let's say 500, a lot of the references, reference labs here in Melbourne, quite 500 nanograms per mil is the, is the upper limit of normal. Yeah. Now, I, um, I remember Alex, you gave a, 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 I won't forget by saying, but there was a certain level above which you said that is the level at which we believe damage is starting to occur to you. Do we still have the threshold? The threshold really that um, where you get concerned about cirrhosis is a ferritin of a thousand. Right. Okay. So, and um, it's quite interesting though, you know, because you know that uh, stellate cells are the the, um, cells, the hepatic cells that you, that produce collagen tissue and produce scar tissue. That uh, the uh, Grant Ram, who was at was at QIMR when I was there, was um, he and I did this study where we retrieved sections of hemochromatosis patients and stained them for for for, for um, activation of the hepatic stellate cell. And the activation occurred at hepatic iron concentration about 70 to 80 micromole per gram. And, uh, and uh, you know, cirrhosis occurs at about hepatic iron concentration about 200. So that's... So... So you do get stellate cell activation, obviously at iron values much lower than what a ferritin of a thousand might represent. But anyway, nevertheless, um, so the ferritin of a thousand is really when triggers should go off in your mind about the the, the risk of um, underlying cirrhosis and and then the, the subsequent importance of putting those people into uh, liver cancer surveillance programs. Do we know how long they have to be at a thousand or more for? That's a very vague kind of question, I suspect. Yeah, I, I mean, most, most, uh, unless you have, you know, like the fellow I just described who had a, you know, a really extraordinary high burden, but most of the, you know, most of the people you diagnose in the cirrhosis are in the 50 or 60 year age group. So, w- with secondary or acquired forms of iron overload, which mm. you don't see that often, but are we, you know, we talk about that term hemosiderosis mm. versus hemochromatosis, mm. um, which can I ask you perhaps to clarify that? Well, I mean, he, the way I think about this is that hemochromatosis is a disease, is a condition, uh, whereas hemosiderosis just to me means iron deposition in, yeah. you know, if you look, you know, if you look at a, a liver or you look at a lung, you know, which has got um Hemosiderin or a sort of iron pigment in it. You know, that's what hemosiderosis is. It's a it's a descriptive term. Whereas whereas I think of hemochromatosis more as a systemic or a condition. Can you get the same or do you get the same pathology changes from iron overload if it's not related to the HFE mutation? By and large, you do. I mean you do um if the the basic defect is an increase in intestinal iron absorption, a lot of your a lot of the um, hemolytic anemias, which are yes. important causes yeah. of iron overload, uh, stimulate iron absorption. Okay. So you get, but then the, the the hemolytic anemias or the iron loading anemias, if you like, are then compounded often by the need for blood transfusion as well. Yes, and so parenterally administered blood. Uh, the excess iron associated that is often deposited in macrophages and Kupfer cell and Kupfer cells, and so you may see more uh, Kupfer cell loading in iron loading anemias because of the blood transfusion than what you might see in in hemochromatosis. Why doesn't it enter the hepatocytes? Do we know? What do we know? One? But it does. It, oh, well, it's just preferentially taken up, I think. You know, by the by the macrophages. 
rather than cardiac tissue or pancreas and so forth. Yeah, but but you, I mean, you can get significant, obviously, cardiac loading in in your iron loading anemia. Yeah. But yeah, um, but it's it's uh, so. But when you increase your intestinal iron absorption from your hemolysis, you you'll, you it will go into hepatocytes. Okay, we've got you know the diagnosis. We kind of you know we get there by suspicion or by looking at the uh, the biochemical results we've just discussed. Do we need to do a biopsy, Daryl, or, or can we just now rely on fibro scans? The studies in fibroscan and hemochromatosis have been, uh, I guess, troubled by a shortage, by, by small numbers. And so, so you know, the, the purists, if you like, are still concerned that, that um, fibroscan may under or overestimate the degree of fibrosis in iron overload. So nobody's really, you know, done a large study. There's a, there's a number of smaller studies, um, but... You know, the uh, my, my approach really has been if I happen to see, you know, a patient with a ferritin of over a thousand, the implication is so great in t- if they're if they're you know uh, able to if they're able and willing to have treatment for HCC that you know the implication is so great that I really want to know ex- exactly how much fibrosis there is. So. Most of the patients that I see with a ferritin of over a thousand who've got who are homozygous for C2A2Y would have a biopsy. So that helps you with your surveillance for HCC. Yeah, I mean because if they're cirrhotic, their risk their risk is you know about a hundredfold that of the general population or somewhere around that. Yes. And so they'll go into a six monthly ultrasound, they'll feed a protein surveillance for HCC. Okay. And and so I think that you know I so. But then, of course, you know, you do get patients who, who you um, don't, uh, who don't want to have a biopsy or can't have a biopsy, or you know, you think that I might think there's there's you know various comorbidities or something that make biopsy risky, uh, risky, and yeah. so those patients I leave, you know, I rely on non-invasive tests, including fibro scans. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. And that risk of HCC continues regardless of whether they're deioned. Or not. Yeah. So just on in regard to venous section and, and the, the sort of the, the which you're, you're writing up this uh, today, but getting to the, what's the level you're aiming for in terms of and why? Virtually every international guideline suggests that you should get down to a serum ferritin of somewhere between 50 and 100. And I think that is really just to... Um, Ensure that you are you, you have fully depleted the excess iron, um, and so so you know not you know studies haven't been done which have said you know well is there a difference in outcome if you go fifty to hundred, hundred to two hundred, so forth. But I, I think it you know it sort of became just the standard that that's what it would be because it seemed sensible to remove excess iron and and, and have a ferritin around that value. You can probably be when you've got people in the maintenance phase. I mean, there are, there are some people who don't tolerate the compliance with any section is not as good as what people think, you know, and that's why I keep uh, keep advocating for for um, the importance, keep advocating for the importance of of other therapies that alter iron balance. And so, for you know, for instance, you know, hepcid and mimics and things like this are, are in clinical trials. Oh, okay. And so, um, so that you from research. We've been involved in one of the trials. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have. Um, 
So because compliance with Phoenix Section, part of that is driven, you know, by difficulties with venous access or people's yeah. failure of needles or people yeah. fainting or yeah. all sorts of reasons why venous section can be, you know, can be difficult. To oh, there's, an ex- there's an expense involved too, if, yeah. it's, if it's done privately. I totally, I totally agree. Um, but, uh, well, that, that, that's very helpful. I've had a few patients, Cyril, that I've been venous sectioning for quite some time, and then their ferritin levels inexplicably have just sort of gone lowish. I yeah. thought, oh gosh, they've got a colorectal carcinoma yeah, yeah, exactly. or some other, yeah. and I've never found anything in these people, not one. And I'm no. just assuming that that phenotypic expression somehow something turns the whole process off. That's no, no. experience too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got quite a few of these. And, and like you say, you know, you do a, you know, you do an endoscopy and a small bowel biopsy to make sure they haven't got celiac yes. disease. You do a colon, make sure they haven't got colon cancer. You know, um, I don't know, you know, whether that's sufficient or whether some people go on and do capsules, but but I've seen this. So I think I think Paul Adams, who's a Canadian hepatologist who spent some time out here working with Laurie, um, I think he's written about this, but I can't find it in any of the literature. But but this, you know, variation within an individual. Yes. Um, and and you know, and then gradually after a year or so, you see saturation climbing again. Yeah. The message is, like you said, the important thing is to make sure that you're, you you haven't missed a colon cancer, really, you know. And all those patients that I followed, and I've got some issue if you want to do a study on them, but uh, not one of them has gone back to the preceding finish section type scheme. No. But not even like three or four no. times a year. They just haven't. No. 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 I don't, I, yeah, so it's interesting. Here's a case for you. Someone who's got a high ferritin, let's say the ferritin, they're referred to, ferritin's around about the 1,200 nanograms per mil mark. But the ceramine and saturation are normal, and they're referred in. We think the patient's got hemochromatosis, and we've just discussed that they don't, almost certainly they don't, because the saturation is normal. And their C-reactive protein and ESR, which I think you've mentioned, probably better to do a clinical examination, they're normal too. But they've got that high ferritin. What's your approach to this sort of patient? High ferritin, iron saturation, yeah. normal. What, what, what are the things that you look at? Liver functions <clears throat> next? Um, I mean, usually you'll find, you'll find that they've got either... You know, they're either overweight or they've got significant alcohol consumption, something that's driving uh, necroinflammatory activity in the liver. But um, but if the ferritin is persistently over a thousand, you know, I yeah. I, I want to make sure that um, I'm not missing one of these unusual yeah. non-HFE related uh, syndromes. Or if they're a you know compound heterozygote, for instance, they're not a really highly expressing compound heterozygote. So I, I um, well, if the ferritin's over 1,000, I tend to go and get a ferry scan performed. So this is an MRI-based test where you can measure the hepatic iron concentration. Right, okay. And that will tell you whether you have got an increased liver iron or, or not. And, and yeah, nearly always, nearly always it's, it's um, <laughs> normal. Normal. I mean, I've got, I don't know, it must have 40 or 50. If any, you know, if there's any budding registrar who wants a, a project, we can go back over the 40 or 50 ferry, or ferry scans and things precisely this. But I mean, you do pick up one or two. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's interesting when you, when you think about what al- alcohol actually suppresses hepcidin further. Yes. Um, and so, you know, you can understand why you might see some alcoholics who have got yeah. some slight increase in hepatic iron. But, but um, 
So I, yeah, if the ferret is persistently over a thousand, I, I prefer to have lymphatic iron concentration measured by ferry scan. Then I know exactly what's going on. That's very helpful. Uh, Daryl, it's been a very helpful discussion with you on, oh, good, the, good. on this uh, subject of iron overload. Thank you very much for, <laughs> for going over it. Uh, I know it's uh, like bread and butter to you, but it's extremely helpful. I'm going to ask you one last question, Daryl. Um, yeah. I know you've got to go. One last question. Thank you very much. Best advice, best advice that was ever given to you as a, a training doctor or as a young consultant? The best, um, I think the best advice I ever had was, um, and it was more, more probably not so much advice, but a statement of fact, but um, you won't ever have as much fun in your life as what you have during your training and early research years. You know, where you really consolidating your knowledge, you're discovering this whole new profession, you know, your diseases that you only read about in, in, you know, in, in Harrison so that you could prepare for the exams you're actually seeing. You're seeing, you know, innovations in the field. Um, you're starting to move where you develop national friendships, you know, with yeah. people from other states and then international friendships. And so I think, uh, so I think taking advantage of that, period of your life can really set up your how much you enjoy your career. Carol, thank you very much. And thank you for your incredible contribution. And, you know, I hope I can see you, you know, one to one some point in time. Yeah, yeah. Great candle over a few <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much. Really okay. appreciate the time. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Daryl as much as I did. It was very enlightening and we all need to be aware of iron sores in our patients, deficiency indicating the possibility of serious internal GI bleeding and pathology such as malignancy, but excess ferritin in the setting of raised iron and transference saturation, perhaps hinting that our patient has hemochromatosis. Now, during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. Discussions aren't intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Next week, we have another very interesting guest in clinical problem to review, and I invite you to join me again then. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcome to maybe email to manager at geohealth.com.au.